Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. The sexual revolution began with idolizing the human body and it's ending with despising the human body. Good morning or good afternoon or good evening to our listeners. This is one of the beauties of not being live. Welcome back on our show, What We Can't Not Talk About, where today we will discuss a um, philosophical, theological, and yet immensely material issue, is our body. In particular, we will discuss the theology of our body. And this based on the personalistic approach, and here's the philosophy bit, of St. John Paul II, Pope of the Catholic Church from 1978 until his death in 2005. Also, we will have the pleasure, the honor, the privilege of doing this with a man, author, teacher, father, entrepreneur, great artist too, I must say, who is worldwide famous for his dedication and his understanding of theology of the body, Christopher West. Welcome on our show, Christopher, and thank you for your time. Mariana, it is a joy to be with you and all of your audience at the Austin Institute. Thank you, Christopher. Before we begin, and the last time you and I talked, we went on for hours, so I hope the listeners have some time. But I just wanted to make a brief note on why we have invited you to speak to us today. So the reason is simple, I think. We believe that we cannot talk about the family, about marriage, and about human sexuality as is within the mission of our institute, unless we get the body right better. We can talk about these things, but we will not get very far. From a theoretical and as a consequence from a policy perspective, it's pretty hard to defend the permanence of marriage, the intrinsic and absolute value of human life, or the reasonableness of large families. If we do not first accept the premise that our bodies are not mere objects that we possess for a while, that we merely inhabit, that we borrow from the material world. So if that's what they are, if our bodies were exclusively matter, we don't understand even what the problem would be with assisted suicide. Right. In my opinion, not even pornography, which is, I think, the great emergency on today's campuses, could not be addressed properly unless we recover an understanding of our own bodies and of the bodies of others that goes beyond their utility for pleasure, And that is inevitably intertwined with the value of their souls, of their innermost being. So once we get the body right, once we get our own beauty right, I also believe, but maybe here I'm just optimistic, that a lot of the anxiety and the depression that affects the otherwise perfect kids that populate American campuses will vanish. And then a final note. So if these are the reasons, there's another note that I want to make, which is this is not going to be a religious talk talk about theology of the body and theology of the body assumes that there is a a generous gift by God in creating us. But as the preamble of the Declaration of Independence does, right? So it's a starting point, but then the reasonableness of theology of the body is something that we can grasp with reason without the gift of faith, as I would say is true for the Bill of Rights. And then last but not least, before we start, Christopher, and thank you for your patience, I also want to say for the most skeptical in our audience, and I know that there are some of them, I hope that we can dedicate some of our time today to the ways in which even the great lessons of theology of the body have been and can be misunderstood, misapplied, corrupted. And I know that you have an interesting story to share, if I recall correctly, in that regard, too. So that said, Christopher... Thank you again for accepting my invitation. Why don't we start with you telling us something about you and about how you discovered theology of the body? Yeah, I was raised in the 70s and 80s, and I was born in the late 60s. And the message about life, the message about the body was basically it was a thing for your pleasure. And that sounded good to me because I was all for pleasure. And But the problem is when I ventured into that world and sought that pleasure, I also found myself deeply wounded. And I found the relationships I was in deeply strained, stressed, and pained. And that put me on my knees in a college dorm in 1988, begging for answers about the meaning of life, the meaning of sexuality, the meaning of joy, the meaning of happiness. And I I did an experiment. I'll tell you this. I did an experiment in 1988 as a freshman in college that changed my life. I decided to stay sober 
for one weekend. Why did I do that? Because I had this hunch that people were pretending they were having a good time. And I started to wonder, why do we have to get drunk to have a good time? What are we numbing ourselves to? And so that experiment actually changed the course of my life. I stayed sober for one weekend just to observe. I studied anthropology in my undergraduate work. I've always been fascinated by human beings, by by the interaction of human beings, by culture. And this was kind of my first anthropological experiment. Stay sober for one weekend. And what I observed was heart-wrenching. I saw the heartache that nobody else was really paying attention to because they were too numb to recognize it. My roommate came back that night from a party, very drunk. He vomited all over my dorm room. It smelled so bad that I I grabbed my pillow and a blanket to go find somewhere else to sleep. And as I'm leaving, I'm looking back at him, seeing him passed out in a puddle of his own vomit. And I'm thinking, why do we call this having a good time? So I, I walk down the hall looking for an open door. I find an open door. I put my pillow and blanket on the floor and try to get some sleep. Well, this guy comes back to his room from a party, doesn't know I'm there, and he's with a girl. And he tries to proceed to have his way with her, right? What's the name of the game? Pleasure. But the problem here is when you treat others as objects for your pleasure, you end up using people rather than loving people. I remember this weak voice saying in response to this guy who was trying to have his way, she said, stop, stop. I'd only want to do this if I knew you loved me. To which he responded, oh, I love you. I love you and proceeded to have his way. And I I have to apologize to every woman in the world that I did not get up and kick the living SHIT out of this guy, which I should have done. But I was so stunned by what was happening. I I couldn't move. I didn't move. Hmm. And this, this experience haunted me. And I began asking the question, what is it that can lead men to treat women as nothing but objects for their own pleasure, as things, as toys, to use them and then discard them. And I was furious at this guy, but the more I was furious at him, the more I knew I needed to ask the question of myself. When I was with the woman I was with at this time in this relationship and we were sexually active, you know, it wasn't a matter of date rape, like what was something something of which I had witnessed, but was I loving her or was I just using her? I had to confront myself with those questions. And as I was honest with myself, I realized I'm not much better than this guy that I witnessed do this horrid thing. And that was a major, major wake up call. I was looking for answers. What is a human person to begin with? What is the human body? What is human sexuality? What does it mean to love someone versus use someone? And why does it cause me and others so much pain when we use one another? My girlfriend of four years eventually broke up with me because she said, you don't know how to love me. And she was right. That was that was that set the stage for the rest of my life. I was 20 years old when she broke up with me and I knew I wanted to find another way to live. I wanted to learn to have successful human relationships. And that meant confronting some very utilitarian attitudes I had in myself about human sexuality. You said you were 20, so you probably, you know, many in our audience will be exactly the same age and probably they can relate a lot to the things you're describing to, which I would just add that whenever, you know, based on what maybe we'll we'll dig deeper into that later, but like whenever we're using someone, we're actually also using ourselves. So there's, there will be a sense of emptiness somewhere that will haunt us. But from there, how do you get to theology of the body, which is... Then we can also say what it actually is, which we haven't yet. Yes. Well, it it put me on a search that pain in my life. Pain is a great motivator. And this is why I, I beg our listeners, be aware of the numbing agents in your life and have the courage to remove them because pain is instructive, right? A culture that sells us a counterfeit version of happiness is also a culture that at one and the same time must sell us all manner of numbing agents to keep us from recognizing the pain we're in, right? When we start removing those numbing agents, then the pain can be instructive. My pain was very, very instructive. And it set me on a journey. I I first started, you know, I I had been raised a Catholic, but I I had been raised on what you might call the starvation diet gospel, 
And by that, I mean, the basic message in the air was your desires are bad. They're only going to get you in trouble. Now, there's there's some element of truth to that because I had gotten in a lot, a lot of trouble. But starvation cannot be the response to erotic desire, right? That force of, of erotic longing in the human heart, it has the power for great good. It is not inherently bad. And we make a huge mistake when we're in so much pain that we blame erotic desire itself. And I went through that stage in my own life. I thought, yeah, my my desires got me in a heck of a lot of trouble. They caused me a lot of pain and they caused a lot of people a, a lot of pain, a lot of other people. And I started getting mad that I even had these desires. Hmm. Nonetheless, the desire would not go away. And I, I, I knew there had to be some constructive way to live erotic desire. And that put me on a journey that led me to the teaching of Pope John Paul II. He had dedicated his entire life, both as a philosopher and as a theologian, to exploring the relationship of man and woman and the purpose and goal of erotic desire and how to channel erotic desire in a healthy, constructive way that will build us up and lead us to the happiness we desire rather than a degenerative way of living this that really leads to our destruction. So I discovered the work, the philosophy and theology of Carol Wojtyla, who became John Paul II. I discovered this in 1993. Hmm. I was 24 years old at the time. And reading two works in particular, Love and Responsibility, which was a work of philosophy. And I'm so glad you're framing this conversation by saying we don't even need to have faith to come to these conclusions. Love and Responsibility is not a, a, a theological work. It's a philosophical work. And the premise of it is that the human being has such a great dignity. It is the kind of being that when you use a human being, it wounds the human being. When you treat a human being as dispensable, replaceable, and repeatable, it's wounding. And this was just, this was language that explained to me my own experience. It wasn't language I was familiar with at the time. Mm -hmm. But John Paul II was the first to tell me that you are unrepeatable, you are indispensable, you are irreplaceable. What does that mean? Well, here's how I put it. Toasters are dispensable, right? You buy a toaster, it malfunctions, it breaks, you throw it away. You're not violating the dignity of the toaster by doing that, right? Toasters are replaceable. You throw that toaster away, you get another one. Toasters are repeatable. There are a million of the very same model of toaster at the Amazon warehouse. But what I learned from the philosophy of Carol Wojtyla is that the human person is the kind of being that is wounded when you treat the person as dispensable, right? We all experience this. When somebody uses us and throws us away, it's like an arrow through the heart. It wounds us. When we're treated as replaceable, you know, we're used, we're thrown away, and we're replaced with someone else. That wounds us, that hurts us, so long as we're not numbed up, right? We feel that pain. When we are treated as repeatable, as if as if uh, my life could be repeated in some other instance, we're missing out on the uniqueness and the dignity. Mariana, there's no other you. Let me just put it that way. There is no other you. You are the only you that has ever existed, which makes you totally unrepeatable. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is a big if, mm. if we are honest with ourselves, when we peel away our cynical layers, when we take off our masks, when we're willing to look at the naked yearnings of the human heart, this is where we want to be seen. This is where we want to be known. This is where we want to be acknowledged and affirmed in our unique, indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable humanity. And what was proposed to me by the philosophy of Carol Wojtyla was that sexual relationship, a, a sexually active relationship, only corresponds to the dignity of the person when it expresses precisely the commitment, the unflinching commitment to uphold the dignity of the person as someone who's indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. If I may also, you know, Love and Responsibility is probably one of my favorite books. And there is a passage that I would like to to read with you to you. But I think that an interesting part of what you're pointing out, it's somehow I could say, you know, it's being less altruistic, but like focusing on ourselves and how we feel. 
You say, you know, you were feeling wounded. You yeah. weren't feeling wounded just because you were sorry for the girl that was in a relationship with you. For some reason, you were feeling wounded. And I think that the philosophy and the personalism of Oitiwa helps us understand that the reason is that we ourselves cannot give the gift of ourselves to someone and then repeat it, right? And Correct. then take it back. So Correct. do we need to recover his understanding of the person to understand that we cannot take a piece of us, let's say the body in this case, put it somewhere, take it back, recover it, and wake up in the morning. And as we take back our clothes, like we take back our body, that there is a part of us that somehow, you know, in this dynamic of gift that he talks about between a man and a woman, it's a gift that, however, cannot be taken back. It's a, it's a gift that demands responsibility for the dignity of the person. And the dignity of the person is such that to, to have sex with you today and leave you tomorrow is to treat you as dispensable. That is not taking responsibility for the dignity of the person. And, and when, I, when, I, when I'm willing to treat you that way, have sex with you today, I leave you tomorrow, part and parcel with that willingness, I'm also recognizing myself as dispensable and replaceable. What if the human being really is capable of a love that is responsible for the dignity of the person? And, and responsible here can sound like, you know, I hear the word responsible and I have memories of my dad, like getting mad at me for why are you being so irresponsible? You need to be more responsible. And the word responsible can seem like a heavy word. But if you pick apart the word, it means the ability to respond, right? We have the ability to respond to love. And love is more than just uh, an excitement of hormones in your bloodstream and, and the, the electric reverberations of energy in your tissues, right? That's orgasm reduced to the physical. But we now we're bringing up this philosophical point about the unity of body and soul. And by looking at a negative, we can discover a positive. So let's look at a negative for uh, a first example. Why does sexual violation wound someone so deeply emotionally and psychologically? If really and truly the body does not have any relationship with my true self, then my body could be used and abused and it would not wound me emotionally or psychologically. The fact that sexual violation, the physical violation of a sexual abusive act, hurts me so deeply psychologically and emotionally points on the negative side of things to the relationship, the intimate unity of body and soul. Let's put that in as positive. Imagine a sexual activity, a sexual relationship, sexual union that expresses utmost respect for the unity of body and soul. What does sex look like when the dignity of the person is honored? I was confronted with that in my early 20s, and it became an examination of conscience that took me back to, to my early teen years when I first started experimenting sexually. And look at the word I just used there, experimenting. Mm -hmm. It's one thing to experiment with chemicals. It's one thing to experiment in a laboratory with rats, but to experiment with another person is to fail to recognize the dignity of that person. Sex, I have come to discover, and my 27 years of married life will play this out. Sex demands such a naked vulnerability that, I mean, there have been times when I've, I've said to my wife, there is no way on God's good earth that I could be this vulnerable with you unless you have promised, made a solemn vow that you will never leave me, that you will never forsake me, that you will never replace me with another that you will never treat me as dispensable, replaceable, or repeatable. You, you, if you haven't made that commitment to me, I can't be as naked as this act is requiring me to be. Yeah, and, and so we, we could argue, you know, as I was trying to say at the beginning, that, you know, we could argue, maybe we're not right, but it is a possibility that maybe some of our listeners might, you know, concede that maybe some of the anxiety and the depression and the sadness and the problems is related to the fact that we are not treating ourselves the way we were meant to be treated. So 
first, you know, being us, the people responsible. But what you assess in his love responsibility, he makes this, you know, he is analyzing the sexual, the sexual urge in human beings and trying to save it somehow, right? And say, if this is part of our body, somehow this must be good. But he also describes how it goes in the wrong direction. And, and I wanted to point out, you mentioned, you know, how a man, you know, you wonder what is it, what is it that makes a man become this? Usorial, utilitarian in his attitude. Right. And so what is the, the female part? How does the woman get it wrong? Yeah, well, Mariana, I would have to put that question back on you. I, I don't feel that I am qualified to answer that. The reason I, I faced the question that way is because I'm a man. Okay. Right? And, and I don't want it to give the impression at all that I think the problem in our society is only on the side of, of men. And to this point, you know, because we have this, we live in a time and age where there is a lot of talking about the toxic masculinity and how, you know, males are the abusers. And, but there is a, there is a way in which Wojtyla speaks about, you know, the fallen woman too, and how that search for love can be misplaced. Yes, absolutely. And in any way that a woman would be treating a man merely as a means to her own pleasure, gratification, be that physical or emotional, uh, then she's not recognizing the dignity of that person. And I'll tell you a story from my own life here. I said I had to go back and examine from my early teen years when I started experimenting sexually. I I had to examine where did that come from? One of my most painful experiences here was I was 14 years old. And there is this girl that we had, a you know, a 14 year old kind of makeout session. And I was assuming that this meant we were now going to have a relationship. And she told me as I was pursuing this, oh, I just wanted to have a story to tell my friends. It was my first experience of being used. And it really, really wounded me. Now, I have to be honest, of course, I was also using her. Uh, she was using me because she wanted to have a story to tell her friends. And I was using her because I had never made out with somebody like that. And I wanted to know how it felt. Mm. And maybe she came up with that story that she wanted to have a story to tell her friends because she felt used by me and she was defending herself. Maybe that's true. Nonetheless, I remember almost making a conscious decision. Okay, if this is how women are going to treat me as something to be used, I'm going to harden my heart so I don't feel the pain. And I'm just going to play that game. To the women's part, I think that there is also the misunderstanding of the woman feeling a need and this need to be loved and accepting the least, like what I call the breadcrumbs in order to fill a void. I think that that stems, the reason I think we have to go back to the body, that stems from not having valued her own nature as irreplaceable, irrepeatable, and what was yes. it? Yeah. Indispensable, irreplaceable, Indispensable. and unrepeatable. Yeah, like have, not having valued yourself enough. So not so much for, you know, gratification in this case, but out of a need, because in the dynamic of gift, yes. you know, the, the receiving and the giving, there is somehow a receiver, which is also the way our body, right? Our, our body is made as women, right. like of receiving this love. And there is like women are thirsty for it, like that they're they're needing it from a man, but probably they do not know anymore how much they're worth. I once heard a woman on a college campus, I was giving a talk and she said to me, Christopher, I would rather be used than ignored. And it really pierced me when she said that. If you want to stop here, I would invite, you know, the women that are listening to think if that's ever something that crosses their mind, if they're really behaving, you know, preferring being used just to know that they exist, yes, to have a confirmation in this word that is so atomized. And you deal, you know, after you've learned all these things about theology of the body, you've been a great promoter of it. Uh, you have your Theology of the Body Institute, you have courses everywhere, you've taught everywhere, you give talks, you're a great podcaster, you ask Christopher, you know, I could ask you any question, I think, because you answer to them almost every day, I know, in your, on your own podcast, in your show. Um, what is, now that you've, you know, you've, you've, you've helped generations, where, what do you think is the most difficult message today? That, that's the first thing I want to ask, then I, then I have a few more. What do I think is the most difficult or most challenging? What, say that again. Difficult for people to understand and to accept. Perhaps the integral relationship of the body to the person. We live in a world that has ruptured the body from human identity to the extent that 
the culture is demanding in law that we identify everybody without reference to any body. <laughs> what happens when you try to identify somebody without reference to his or her body? You identify quite literally no body. This is the tragedy and the irony of a culture that is, is so obsessed with identity questions. You know, all this talk about identity in the world and the truth of the matter is, Mariana, we are becoming a culture of no bodies. We've ruptured identity from the body and that makes us no body, quite literally, no body. The, the, the relinking of human identity with the body, I think, is, is a challenge because in the world in which we've been raised, the body has become the source of so much pain, so much suffering. And we think salvation is salvation from the body. We want to be liberated from the body, right? I'm a person of faith, and my goal is not to impose my faith on anyone, but I don't know any real solution other than what Christ holds out to us, which is from the body. It is salvation of the body. This is a bold, bold and challenging proposal. But I think it's the only one that does justice to what a human being is. We are not spirits trapped in a body. We are incarnate spirits. And so there is hope. Hope is only real if it involves the body. Beautifully said, as you always do. And I want to, you also have a show that I, I watched when you were here in Austin. So I want to get back to that. But like what you just said reminded me of, you know, how Alasdair McIntyre placed one of the problems of today in our forgetfulness of the body, which is what you're referring to right now. Yes. But I think that there is another uh, side of this, which is once we understand the value, we might become scared of the body, which I think is another problem that I remember we discussed together and, and Wojtyla talks about it in, I think, in a very beautiful way in Love and Responsibility, where he connects the rigoristic approach to yes. sex to sex and to the sexual life to the libidinistic, what he calls the libidinistic approach to sexual life. And he says, yeah. you know, these are just two phases of the same coin. Two sides of the same coin. So would you say more about that? Yes. So if you take a, a rigoristic approach to sex, meaning uh, it's kind of what I was saying earlier, I was raised on this starvation diet approach, right? And the basic message was your sexual desires are bad. You need to repress all that, but follow these rules. You'll be a good upstanding citizen. I'm a hungry guy, right? Uh, starvation is, is not an option, which is why I became in my teenage years a quick convert to the fast food approach, which is everywhere in the culture. And I call it fast food because the sexual revolution held out to us the promise of immediate gratification for those desires. So that would be the libidinistic approach that Voiti was talking about. But the libidinistic approach and the rigoristic approach what I call in my metaphoric language, the starvation approach and the fast food approach, these are flip sides of this very same coin that has failed to integrate the body and the soul, right? The rigoristic or starvation approach ruptures the body and the soul and basically says, spirit good, body bad. Just go live a spiritual life and all that bodily sexual stuff is corrupt and, and evil. Or if I may interrupt you there, it's not just only evil. It can be saved within marriage and for the purpose of kids, but like it's a mere instrument, right? It's yes, just but something. Yes, yes. But even there, it's not yet saved. It's just justified, right? It's not really saved. It kind of has a legitimate veneer, but we haven't gotten underneath the surface to really solve the problem, right? So you have that one rupture, which is let's emphasize spiritual things and rupture it from the body. But then in the fast food approach, the flip side of the coin is let's just emphasize everything that's physical and sexual and indulge in it all the time, thinking this is going to solve the problem. Well, I learned the hard way as a human being that you can die from starvation, but you can also die from food poisoning, right? Either way, you're dead, right? The starvation approach, you're going to die from starving, from malnourishment. The fast food approach, you're going to die from the ingestion of all that grease and sodium. Eventually, it's going to kill you. Is there another way to live? Is there another way to see? Is there another way to think? Is there another way to experience an integrated body and soul unity where human sexuality can be celebrated as an expression of human relationship 
that corresponds to the dignity of the person. Is that possible? That's the question we have to look at. Is it really possible to love is another way to put it. Or are we bound to just treat one another as objects for our pleasure? I mean, it's curious that you say, you know, is it possible? Because one thing that the non-religious or some of the least religious could think is that, okay, great. Christians are great in living the rigoristic one, right? They get married. They only have children within marriage. They only have sex within marriage. And that's for the one only person. But they look like there is something wrong with it. Now, I know that, you know, theology of the body might be more attractive by the way you phrase it for people who are living the hookup culture or for living that are living sex life without without a rule. But I would think that that's not truly the case, that theology of the body might be a very good solution for people that are married, but that have bleak or... Yes. Let's talk about that. I yeah. want to press into that because you're putting your finger on something I don't think a lot of Christians are willing to fess up to, and I would like to fess up to it. I think a lot, I, I mean, this is just my experience. I've been traveling the world for since the 90s, a long time, uh, giving these presentations. And and I've had lots of intimate conversations with thousands and thousands of people around the world about these topics. And it is my my distinct impression that Christians, by and large, are sexually very unhealthy, by and large. And here's why I think that is. If the only two approaches you hold out to people are indulge or repress your libido, which one appears to be more holy? I'm going to put that in quotes. Repress. Repress appears to be more holy, right? And this is why so many Christians have deep-seated sexual problems. Wojtyla himself says in Love and Responsibility, If our approach to chastity is the word he uses, I know he himself admits we need to rehabilitate that word because it has a lot of negative and wrong connotations. But he says, if our approach to chastity, if our, let me put it this way, if our approach to sexual virtue is just one of repressing libido, it's only a matter of time, he suggests, before what we have repressed explodes in all kinds of dysfunctional sexual activity. That really, I think, pinpoints one of the main causes, if not the main cause, of the sexual revolution. If you go back 100 years into the culture, the prevailing ethos 100 years ago was was really a puritanical ethos, a fearful, repressive approach to human sexuality. 1953, Hugh Hefner starts Playboy magazine, and he says, I started Playboy magazine as my personal response to the hurt and hypocrisy of Puritanism in my strict Christian upbringing, right? And I say Hugh Hefner was right in his diagnosis of a problem, a major problem, but he was wrong in in the cure. He just flipped the Puritanical pancake over from repress to indulge, right? From From the starvation approach to the fast food approach. And if fast food becomes your steady diet, okay, it's better than starving to death. And yes, don't lie to me. The chicken nuggets do taste good going down. Mm -hmm. But if that becomes your steady diet, the grease and the sodium is going to catch up and you're going to be ill. And that's the world we're living in right now. The sexual revolution began with idolizing the human body and and it's ending with despising the human body. Mm Getting almost rid of it, right? Like and living in this imaginary world. But if so, if this is a problem with rejection or excessive, like, would you agree that if we are to reintegrate and to understand our bodies and our souls as one thing and beautiful thing and the magic of the woman and the man coming together and participating in creation, right? Like generating life, which is not something that our thoughts can do alone, right? We need we need the the sexual union when we need it to be reproductive. Isn't that the premise to understand, for instance, the problem with not just abortion, but the problem with, I mean, I have to say it here, you know, non-Christian show, but like the problem with contraception. Yes. So what is, what is philosophically speaking? So not religious. Well, what is in this understanding of the person, the problem with contraception? Yes. The problem with contraception is that it ruptures the body and the soul. And I'll give you an example of this. I'll never forget. I was giving a lecture years ago in which I was raising this issue that contraception is really at the root of the gender confusion we're involved in today. 
let me do a little aside about why contraception or how contraception has played such a major role in the gender confusion today. And then I'll come back to why contraception attacks the body, the unity of the body and the soul. So let's let's return to the origin of the word gender, right? Mm. Before the modern world started deconstructing the word gender, every culture knew that gender was related to the manner in which you generate new life, right? Look at that Greek root, gen. We see that same root in words like generous, generate, progeny, genealogy, genetics, right? Gen, the Greek root, means to produce or give birth to. The word gender, the very reason the word was coined, was to give us a word that pointed to the manner in which we generate new life. There are only two ways to do that. The male gender generates the next generation with sperm. The female gender generates the next generation with eggs. And notice, you need both sperm and eggs for generation to take place, right? And sperm meets egg through genital intercourse, another gen word, right? So it's your genitals that determine the manner in which you generate new life. In other words, your genitals determine your gender, hmm. right? Because gender means the manner in which you generate new life. It's amazing. It takes us five minutes to say that. I yeah, know, I, I, know, know. I, know, I know. You know what we used to call this? We used to call this the facts of life. Yeah. But today, the facts of life are entirely up for grabs. Why? How did we get here? Hmm. In just a few generations, we got here to this utter confusion about gender. We can't understand the gender confusion until we go back to the fact that rendering the genitals unable to generate is the original attack against the meaning of gender. Right? It's the original attack against gender. And it's the original modifying of the body to erase the very purpose and fundamental meaning of gender, which is the generation of new life. Culture that respects the meaning of gender as the power to generate new life, that means a culture that honors the meaning of our genitals will be a culture that lives and honors the meaning of the relationship between male and female. But a culture that renders the genitals unable to generate will be a culture that degenerates. Right? That's the culture in which we live today. Sexual activity at its most natural level, at the basic God-given, and we don't even have to bring God into it if you don't believe in God, but just look at nature, mm -hmm. right? Why, why in nature are there male and female of a species to generate the next generation, right? When you dishonor that, when you want to engage in sexual activity but render the genitals unable to generate, you have sucked the meaning, the fundamental meaning given by nature. You've sucked that meaning out of the sexual activity. A culture that sucks the meaning out of sexual activity will also eventually suck the meaning out of sexual identity. The two stand or fall together, right? Sexual activity and sexual identity, their meaning will stand or fall together. The world we live in today is the rotten fruit of having embraced that fundamental attack against gender which is rendering the genitals unable to generate. We are now bearing the rotten fruit of that. We take this entirely for granted, right? We just think it's normal that uh, we've neutered ourselves. Yeah, it's normal that we are like a car that we keep in our garage, right? Correct. So what, what Correct. is the point? Like we have this amazing bodies that are capable of doing amazing things, but we say, oh, but isn't it amazing that we can control them as if, you know, if we did it with our eyes, oh, we can prohibit, you know, we can make it impossible for our eyes to see. Isn't that great? I mean, nobody yes, we, would, right? Nobody would perceive it as a great achievement that would make yes. ourselves blind. Yes. I, I call this looking at the body and looking at human relationships with condom colored glasses. <sighs> Right? When you put your condom-colored glasses on, the meaning of gender eventually evaporates. You can't see it anymore. You can't see the very, what is, take those glasses off and let your focus adjust. And what gets illuminated is that men and women are literally organized for one another because we have the organs, the genital organs, that allow us to become one functioning organism. What do I mean by that? 
Every function in my body is complete in itself except one. My circulatory system, my respiratory system, my digestive system, and all the other systems, but one is complete in itself. I have this thing called the reproductive system. It is not complete in itself. A woman has also a reproductive system that is not complete in itself. Male and female are organized for each other here. We literally have the organs and they are called the genital organs for a reason because they allow genital intercourse and genital intercourse allows the generation of the species, right? Mm -hmm. Put your condom colored glasses on and that evaporates. What do you now become for me? A woman now becomes for me an object for my own gratification. The idea of sexual relations is no longer- it can be a woman or it can be a man or it can be anything, right? It it can be an object. It doesn't need to be a woman. Yeah. It it can be a screen, right? right? It can be pornography. Exactly. Mariana, you're putting your finger right on it. As soon as we remove fertility from the sexual equation, the goal of sexual activity is no longer raising a family. What happens now is- Sex gets thrown back on itself, and the goal is pleasure. And when the goal is pleasure, not that there's something wrong with pleasure in itself, but the purpose of pleasure, it's not the essence of what sex is. It's an accident that goes along with sex, right? Not accident like a car accident, but it's not the essence of the sexual act. It's something that accompanies the sexual act. But when the goal becomes pleasure, the other person becomes object for my pleasure. And the purpose of the sexual difference is now erased. And and you mentioned the purpose, you know, uh, here I want to ask you one thing as a father, I think of five, correct? Yes, yeah. correct. So you, you mentioned, right, one of the goals, uh, and I, you know, I don't have kids, so I'm just, you know, learning this from others. But one of the goals of fertile relationship is that of raising a family. But I think you would agree with me that, you know, if we stress, if we use the term raising a family, it, it all focuses on how much work and how much money and how much you have to give, which is, I think our society is obsessed with that. But what has been completely forgotten is that the Christopher who is indispensable, irrepeatable and irreplaceable is a gift to his mother and father, right? And siblings and friends, like that whatever you will generate is a gift. You're creating this gift, but then this child is a gift to you and you have no idea what that person is going to bring to your life. Like, don't you think that this deserves being stressed a little bit? Absolutely. Absolutely. And what you're, what you are describing is the interconnection of the generations, right? And, And when we lose touch with where we come from and where we're going, we entirely lose touch with our bodies. We could go the other way too. It's kind of a chicken and an egg thing. When we lose touch with our bodies, We lose touch of where we come from and where we're going. What do I mean? Everyone has a belly button. That belly button tells us something profound about the interconnection of the generations. My belly button tells me where I come from. My belly button tells me I come from the genital union of my parents. And my parents coming together in their genital intercourse is what generated me. Mm-hmm. My belly button is a daily reminder of that, right? And just below my belly button, I have an invitation to pay it forward, right? My genitals tell me I'm part of some cosmic stream of human generations. My belly button tells me I come from my parents and my genitals tell me I'm invited to become a parent. I'm invited to become a father. <laughs> and and so I, I learned to pay it forward. There is something about rejecting this that is somehow taking us outside of history. Correct. Exactly. John Paul II says that when a husband and wife or a man and a woman, they don't even need to be husband and wife to generate a child. But when a man and a woman come together in the sexual act, he says they if their eyes are open to what sex really is, he says that act bears all the weight of human existence. Wow. Um, you know, the silence here is as people might, you know, if you hear silence on a podcast, you might think what happened, the connection, what I think that there are, <laughs> right. But there are sentences that just like, wait a minute. Yeah. I think, yeah. And I, I think intuitively, at least we all know that this is true. I don't want to take too much of your time, but before we close, I, I wanted to talk with just one second about 
There is one sentence that to me, after seeing, I call it a show. I mean, I know that you go and give talks, but I mentioned you're an artist. You have a great voice. I heard you sing. You're you're almost yes. We, we call it an event. We an event. we we don't want to call it a lecture. We we because there's music and live music involved. We have big screens and lighting, and it's it's kind of like a night at the theater that we do when we take the it show. It really is, and and I mean, I I encourage anyone who sees that there is one, you know, uh, next to them to go uh, to go and see. But but to me, one sentence that keeps coming to mind if I think back of what what you described and said during that event, which you know, a lot of things that which touched on today was they have eyes, but they do not see. And and it was introduced by this video of a girl on her phone, worried about the way she looks, probably yes. thinking about surgery or, you know, yes. or, or, or losing weight. So if you want to just tell us something more about this day of eyes, but they do not see as, yes. as a description of, of today. It's a line from scripture where Jesus says, they look, but do not see. And I begin this event with that scripture up on a a big screen. They look but do not see. And then I ask the women a question. And I've asked hundreds of thousands of women this question over the years. I say, ladies, what's the difference between when a guy looks at you and when a guy sees you? And which do you prefer? Never. In all the years I've been asking women that question, never has a woman said, I prefer to be looked at rather than seen. So what? You tell me, Mariana, and you tell the audience, what do you intuit right away about the difference? That we're not just the outside, right? There's so much more. What you are intuiting is the unity of body and soul. And the look separates the body from the soul. This is very detrimental to us. Why? We have a word. (laughs) We have a word that describes very pointedly the separation of body and soul. Do you know what that word is? The very definition of the separation of body and soul, death, death, (laughs) that's death. When we look at someone, but we don't see the dignity of the person in a very real way, we're killing that person because we're rupturing the body and the soul. The invitation of Christianity, the invitation of human life, but I I don't know any other way to regain sight than, than through Jesus Christ. This is why I believe that Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, because he came to give sight to the blind. His invitation, this comes right at the start of the Gospel of John. The first words out of the mouth of Jesus in the Gospel of John are these. What do you want? What are you desiring? Mm. What are you seeking? Right. This idea that Christ wants us to repress our desires is, is so false. It's blasphemous. Christ does not want us to repress our desires. Christ wants to redeem our desires. And here I'll I'll quote from John Paul's Theology of the Body. He says, Christ doesn't want us, this is the context, Christ does not want us to repress erotic desire. Christ wants us to experience, and here's the quote, Christ wants us to experience the fullness of eros, of erotic longing, which implies the upward impulse of the human spirit towards what is true, good, and beautiful. So that what is erotic also becomes true, good, and beautiful. When I first read that in 1993, Mariana, hope was breathed into my lungs. From all the pain I had experienced of using and being used, hope was breathed into my lungs that there was another way to experience erotic longing that upheld my dignity and the dignity of other human beings in such a way that That hope was really the hope that my desire to see and be seen could be fulfilled. We don't just want to be looked at. We want to be seen. And the second thing Jesus says in the Gospel of John is, come, follow me, and you will become one who sees. Your eyes will be open, and you'll come to see who you really are. You'll come to see the dignity of being male and female and what that means. And you'll come to see, if I may quote from one of St. Paul's letters here, you'll come to see that human sexuality is a great mystery that reveals God's ultimate plan for the universe. The whole Christian understanding here is that human sexuality, the union of man and woman, is a kind of sacrament. It's a sign that points to something far greater, 
far more beautiful, far more lasting. You know, my wife and I are celebrating 27 years today. Today's our. Oh, wow. And Congratulations. I, yeah, that's you. good. Thank you. And thank you for doing this with us. I mean, what outfitting for the Austin Institute for the Southern family, you know, like, yeah, of course, of course. And and I, my point here is not to draw attention to my myself or my anniversary, but to say, you know, wedding anniversary is always a time to reflect. And an anniversary is also an indication that, you know what, one day I'm going to die or Wendy's going to die. My wife, Wendy, we pledge at the altar that we will love one another until we part at death. I don't like I don't if I look honestly at my heart, I am yearning for a love that is stronger than death. You're giving like a message that is full of hope. And I think, you know, it, it, it does speak also to people who do not have faith because even when Jesus speaks, right, and inviting the person to come and follow, the reason the person follows is that he understands that there is something more, right? So we're just talking about, okay, do we recognize that there is this need for something more? But I, I was mentioning at the beginning that I wanted to talk to the skepticals in the audience because I yes. know that a lot of people have found, you know, so-called experts of theology of the body that have not been the best examples in their life or how to treat a woman or how to treat a man. And so it's true well, I'm that- I'm going to include myself, yeah, I'm right. include so, myself oh, okay. in that group because I'm not the best example either. I, I'm a broken man like anybody. What I wanted to ask you, you know, is also in that sense, a hope, meaning we might understand these things and understand that they're so obvious, but then- the ability to integrate this for real might take a lifetime. It does take a lifetime. There's no might about it. Okay. It takes a lifetime. I, I'll tell a quick story about myself here. Uh, 10 years into married life, uh, this would be, uh, so we married in 95. This would be 2005. I was offered a very lucrative book deal by the biggest publishing house in the world in New York City. And they wanted me to write a book for husbands called Loving Her Rightly. And I was so excited about this book deal. I came home to tell Wendy about it. They wined me. They dined me. They're going to offer me a lot of money, honey. We're going to be able to put some money away for the kids for college. And get this. They want me to write a book for husbands called Loving Her Rightly. You should have seen the look on Wendy's face when I told her the title of that book. Uh, that was that was a big wake-up call for me. She She basically said, you are in no place to be writing a book for husbands called Loving Her Rightly. And you were already teaching theology. Yeah, I've been teaching this for for fifteen years almost, and um, that was that was a time of real self examination. And I realized I had been wearing a lot of masks. I had been pretending because I was a public figure, and and I thought you know I had to get my act together, and I wasn't allowed to be broken because I was out there teaching this stuff. And this is just reality. We are broken. And, and it, you know, a car drives and its headlights are out in front of it. You know, we always are in that tension. Like the lights have to be out in front of me for me to get there and not crash. But I never catch up with the headlights. They're always still ahead of me, right? The, the, the truth about love is always ahead of us. And we have to keep going. We have to keep learning. And this is what John Paul II says in Love and Responsibility. And it's so human and it's so right. He says, we needn't be troubled or disturbed about human weakness. He says, because it's in this place that love shows its true colors, right? When weakness shows itself, authentic love does not then withdraw, but it draws even closer in. And I experienced that from my wife. I was so afraid of my brokenness because I thought it made me unlovable. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to hide it behind all these masks. And of course, if you're married to somebody, you can't hide that stuff. You can pretend for a while, but all your crap comes out. And my wife has taught me that it's okay to be broken and that my brokenness does not make me unlovable. If we don't know we're loved in our brokenness, then there's no hope of really ever being loved. Christopher, I really think this is the message that needs to be heard because we are not saying that the model, you know, needs to come down at our level and use our instincts, you know, as they come, because the models in Zana Taylor, the model needs to remain the one that is the greatest love possible. And, but at the same time, accepting, so not being proud and being humble and knowing that we will not be perfect. And this yeah. helps us, you know, talk, having friends and telling them the truth about how we feel, 
how we fall short about, you know, in the way we live, even the way we live our relationships, including when we are, you know, when we consider ourselves. So I think, I think it's important because otherwise we get buried either, you know, we either fall again, you know, on one of the two sides, we either go full on with the libertinistic mentality, or we try to be this best version of ourselves, which is just unattainable. Yes. Yes. And we repress, we repress the ugly parts of us as if they're not there. Yeah. And, and that doesn't help relationships because it doesn't, it closes you off to other people to, um, and I know you have a book, right? You, I mean, you have plenty of books and I recommend all of them. We will link in this episode to everything that you do, you know, your courses, your institute, your books. But I think you, in particular, you wrote a book, right? About this, this time of your life or was the story? Oh, yes, yes, yes. That book is called, (laughs) this book, that book is called Love is Patient, But I'm Not. And you have a great book also. I mean, you have plenty of great books and I'm going to recommend them all. But I think that also to the topic of, you know, we were talking about gender previously. It was a, two, a book you wrote in 2018, which is strictly, you know, related. We deal a lot here with sexuality and gender. What What's the title of that, that book that, again? Uh, that book is called Eclipse of the Body, How We Lost the Meaning of Sex, Gender, Marriage and Family and How to Reclaim It. Yeah. And the how to reclaim it part, I think it's, you know, it's one of the parts that we, we should be reading carefully. To that point, one of our fellows, Professor Bujaczewski, in his very famous old book at this point, what we can't now know, he has the last, the last chapter is dedicated on how to regain the public relation of moral right, he calls it, right? And he says, how should we go out in the world and, you know, explain whatever it is we learn? He says that one of the wrong attitudes we can have there are four in all that he lists, but one of them is the exclusivism. And by exclusivism, he means when we just talk to the base, you know, we activate the base, but we fail to change the word. Yes, yes, yes. And so I think that your work in this is a great witness to absolutely not being an exclusivist, right? Because everyone can show up, correct? Yes, absolutely. And we make an appeal so often in the work we do to to the arts, the the arts artists are geniuses, the good artists. What are they doing? They're looking honestly at what's happening in the human heart and they're putting it out in visuals, in in tones, in images, in music. And we begin this event that we do, you'll remember this, Mariana. We begin this event we do talking about the indispensable, irreplaceable, unrepeatable reality of a person. And then I make the point that these ideas come out with remarkable clarity in of all places, the movie Toy Story 3, right? And, you know, sometimes we just go to movies for entertainment and we're not paying attention to the deeper message. Toy Story 3 is an ingenious work of art because whoever wrote it understands precisely the point I've been trying to make, that the human being is indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. And here's here's a quick rundown of the story, right? New to Toy Story 3 is a stuffed bear named Lotso. And Lotso is the self-appointed tyrant leader of all of the toys at Sunnyside Daycare. And he's a jerk, and we're meant to think of him as a jerk. But then we learn his backstory, and we start to have some compassion for Lotso. We learn that earlier, Lotso had been Daisy's favorite toy. And Daisy took Lotso everywhere, including on a family vacation when she mistakenly left Lotso behind at a rest stop. And Lotso journeys back to Daisy's house. So excited to be there. He looks in the window and she is now playing with another stuffed bear just like him. And the narrator says, this is when Lotso snapped and became a monster inside. And now he's trying to sabotage everybody else's happiness. Right. At one point, he says to Woody, you think you're special, cowboy? You ain't nothing but a piece of plastic. You're meant to be thrown away. Pay attention. The next time you watch this, and I I invite the listeners, watch Toy Story 3. What a great homework. I mean, amazing. There it is. Pay attention to the theme of trash, because the whole point is you are not meant to be thrown away. There's another scene when the Barbie doll is about to fall into a dumpster. Trash again. And the Ken doll is ready and willing to sacrifice his life to save Barbie. And Lotso says, what are you doing, Ken? She's a Barbie doll. Why go to all this trouble? There's a hundred million others just like her. And Ken says, not to me, she's not. To me, she's the only one. And Barbie goes, "Ah, she Mm. melts. Why does she melt? 
Because Ken recognizes she's indispensable, irreplaceable, and unrepeatable. This is Toy Story 3. This is Hollywood, right? These artists who write these stories like this, they're anthropologists, they're philosophers. And by this, I mean, they understand what the human heart is really looking for. And so much. So, I, I mean, they understand it so much. That I think that there is not one listener. I mean, I bet that if there is one, I want an email to come at me immediately when they think that they do not perceive themselves and want to be that indispensable. And want to be loved. Yes. And because there is no human being that is OK being one of a hundred and just, you know, put me in a series and I don't want to be. Um, I, I mean, if I receive that email, I will turn it to you and then send them to to the theology of the body incident, you deal with that. But as I was, I was saying, I was, I wanted to specify at first that your courses are open to single, to girls, boys, what age, yes. married, non married. They are credited courses, so we started. You have to have a high school. Yeah, people who graduated high school. That's that's our target audience for people who come to our courses. Okay, and how many do you house during the year? We have 12 different courses that we offer. We offer a certification program. And we if you take all 12 courses and then go on to study with Pontifex University, we have a relationship with them where you can get a master's degree in, in this teaching as well. Which, you know, considering the times in which we live, probably a master is what we need to, to react to the culture unless we want to go through. In your case, you have your wounds, you know, and many other people who are listening might have their own. If Maybe without thinking deeply about these things, the price we pay is very high because we pay with our own stories and we paid with our own bodies. Hey, exactly. We pay with our own pain. Christopher, I want to thank you. And I, again, I mean, I knew that this would not have been a short episode, but I could go on for another hour. I would like for you, you know, I know that I often need to stop a conversation or a thought because otherwise we, we go on for too long. But if there is something more that you wanted to share with our thank audience you. before living, I, I would love to hear it. Yeah, I, I wanted to just conclude a thought that I began and we went off in a different direction. But mm. there's this cry of the human heart in the Song of Songs. And for those people listening who aren't men and women of faith, the Song of Songs is erotic love poetry that's right at the heart and center of the Bible. Literally, if your Bible is a thousand pages long, go to page 500 and you're at the Song of Songs, the great erotic love poetry of Scripture. And at the end of the Song of Songs, the lovers cry out from the depth of their hearts for a love that is stronger than death. Right? That's the cry of eros, of erotic longing for a love that survives death. And I was reflecting on that because today's my 27th anniversary. And when you, when you, you know, keep track of years, you're not just looking back 27 years, you're looking forward and you realize, well, one day I'm going to die. Here's the proposal. The proposal is that there is a love that has conquered death. And remember I said earlier in the program, there's really no hope unless it includes the body. And the proposal of Christianity to the world, and this is why I'm a follower of Christ, the proposal is that love has conquered death bodily, that a body came out of the grave, a body came out of the grave, and a body, a human body is participating in the infinite bliss of, of life-giving love that is God. That's the Christian proposal, and that's why I'm a Christian, because I, I have found that the Christian proposal alone does justice to the unity of my body and soul, right? Every religion has some understanding of an afterlife but it's just a spiritual thing, right? The, the soul is liberated from the body. That's what most religions proclaim. That's not Christianity. Christianity proclaims a resurrection of the body, that for eternity, we will be united body and soul, and we will be participating bodily in the ecstasy of divine life-giving love. If that's real, then I'm in because that's what my humanity demands. Yeah. And I mean, to the point, you know, whether that is real or not, I think that the question that we can pose to our audience is, is this attractive? Yeah. Is it attractive? If it attracts you, then, you know, you can dig deeper. But like, if it is attractive, then maybe it says something of the way we're built. Now, some evolutionary right. psychologists might say this is going to be the best way for us to live, you know, even if it's not true. Maybe. I don't know. For those who have the gift of faith, it also sounds like it's pretty true. But as long as it is attractive, like it's like when you're hung, you were usually hungry, right, for things that are nourishing. We're not, you know, we, we don't start eating stones. Like we know what is the food that is appropriate. There's an, an intuition of what is good for us. So if and if it's not attractive, then, you know, I would just hope that 
they enjoy the show and uh and of course they can ask questions you know to you have all your contacts are are on the website everything will be linked for anyone who's more curious they can listen to your hundreds if not thousands of podcasts and shows and lectures and i honestly look forward christopher to seeing you again if not in austin somewhere else but i will really want to thank you for your time again you know, now go celebrate wendy please because she's been I'm, I'm i'm imagining you know she's been probably a, a very very great wife based on those away i i can't imagine life without her yes i'm taking her out to dinner to celebrate our anniversary tonight wonderful wonderful thank you very much again and thank you for for being part of our show so welcome Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, and if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this, we can continue our programming, and of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.